Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Test Prep Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Seitz. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Seitz, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Guardian Test Prep, an NREMT test prep company that specializes in helping EMT and paramedic students pass their national registry exam. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. I mean, it sounds like you're struggling with it. Hold on. I mean, I just, I don't doing? know. I just feel like I can't fight this feeling anymore. You know what I mean? It's like I've forgotten what I've started fighting for. Are you just quoting an speed Speedwagon? No, no, no. We should get started, though, because we really should bring this ship into the shore. All right, oh so welcome to the Back to Basics Guardian Test Prep Podcast. We are excited to be here today. Uh, this is a podcast where two brothers, myself and Jason, one's a one's a paramedic firefighter RN and one's a ER physician. Um, we're going to make you guess which one, or you listen before you know. But anyway, we come together and we talk about medical topics that uh, can sometimes be complicated. Um, and we like to bring them back to basics as best we can, simplify them for you so that you have uh, the knowledge and the things that you need to get out in the field. And uh, what I like about the, today's topic is that it's a, it's a non, it's, it's not very normal. It's not something that we see all the time, which we like to get into those. And then we di- dive into those topics, but then we're also going to dive into topics on other episodes where we talk about things that you see every day. So we kind of want to cover the whole gambit here of just, you know, different medical topics that uh, you may you may come in contact with. So um, if you like what you hear today, you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you check out our NREMT test prep program, guardiantestprep.com. Uh, we've got over 15 hours of great content for you. Jason and I, um, we like to have fun while we teach. Uh, we cover all the national standards so that you pass that exam. We also have question banks and workbooks and lots of things to help you study. So again, check that out at guardiantestprep.com. If you are listening to this podcast for the first time, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service and you know like us on Facebook and Instagram as well. We'd like to follow you there. So Jason, you want to jump in and tell us what yeah. we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So today's topic, we're talking about organophosphates and sludgem. So organophosphate poisoning, okay. the symptoms we'd see from that, and then how we would go about and treat that. And actually the reason that I picked this is for, for you listeners out there, we run a Facebook group called NREMT Practice Questions. So if you are, um, if you're studying for the National Registry or anything like that, and you want to just start seeing some good National Registry-based practice questions that come up, um, it's NREMT daily practice questions. So if you search that group, yeah, you can jump on. And I will say, even too, even if you're not studying for National Registry exam, I mean, I haven't studied for my medical boards in ten years. I got or I guess it hasn't been ten years quite yet. But every ten years, I got to retake my boards. I still like to do questions. I mean, questions, I think, even when you're in practice and you already passed these exams, can really help stimulate you to remember certain things that, you know, like the examination stuff sometimes zeroes in on stuff that's kind of irrelevant, but you just have to know. But a lot of times it doesn't, right? A lot of times it's things that can remind you of, oh, yeah, I forgot that that's the pathophysiology of asthma. Or, oh, yeah, I forgot about organophosphate, you know, these kind of things, right? So, yeah, make sure you check that out, too, if you want some. We'll put a link in the description for you so you can check it out. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, but anyway, on this site that I, I kind of help run, um, one of the questions had to do with, I forget what poisoning it was, but I kind of threw sludgem in there and atropine as the treatment as sort of like a distractor because that's a common, and everyone jumped right on that, and they were like, sludgem, 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 atropine, atropine, atropine. So this is like something that we hear about a, a lot, but it's also like we don't know it very well, and we also just assume that, like, all poisoning must be organophosphate. Sure, <laughs> so sure we, yeah. Like, when we get into, like, what organophosphates are and how the mechanism of action works, just understand that there are, like, lots of ways that your body can be poisoned. Organophosphates 
for some reason, are a very um, it's like a hot topic. high yield. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a like, high yield thing on the exam, and it's a high yield thing in in the programs. And it's probably because we have like quick treatments for it. So, and right? that's what I was gonna say. So that's it's another thing too, like organophosphate poisoning. It's like one of the only ones you remember from like when I was in medical school as well, or like when I did my emergency medicine residency. So again, for whatever reason, it's one that like stands out, but I think it's because we have antidotes and we know how those antidotes work really well. There's lots of different poisonings out there. Like I said, if you're in our program, you can take a look at our toxicology lectures. We talk about a lot of them, the ones that are going to show up on the exam and uh, the ones that the National Registry considers to be important for EMTs and paramedics to know. And organophosphates is is just one of them. And there's tons, right? There's cardiac drugs. There's... um, you know, sympathomimetic medications. Any drug, too much of anything. Yeah, too much of anything, right? right? But but organophosphates, we actually have an antidote, and we don't have an antidote for a lot of a lot of um, different poisonings and things. We have treatments, but not an antidote. An antidote is going to be something that re- specifically reverses the effects um, of that poison, and we, and we don't actually have that for a lot. But we do for organophosphates. The other th- reason that organophosphates are, I think. Uh, like I said, a, a popular topic when it comes to toxicology and poisoning is because we also see them in like um, terrorism and stuff like that. So obviously that's been kind of a hot topic over the last you know ten or twenty years. So that's another reason that they come up a lot. It, it's cheap to make mm-hmm. if you wanted to weaponize it, right? So it, it is an easy way to and that'll be our follow up episode. Is we'll we'll make some <laughs> teach you how to weapon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Let's start from the beginning. As we approach any scene where we suspect some sort of poisoning, exposure. you know, hazard, exposure, hazardous materials type situation, we do obviously have to have a lot of, uh, you know, preparation done and slow things down a bit and make sure that we're concentrated on our own safety first, right? Because you can't become the victim. Um, well, don't, don't cause a rescue with, of the rescuer, right? Yeah, and especially with things like organophosphates, as soon as you, especially from a hazmat standpoint, as soon as you expose yourself and didn't take those initial precautions, well, now you're in the hot zone, and you can't really come out without contaminating everybody. Um, I was able to go down to FEMA in Anniston, Alabama, a few years back, and we did some kind of like mass casualty training stuff, and that was one of the things is that they put you through these scenarios where you had to diagnose what what it was. So, you know, me and a couple, I was the, I was the physician, and a couple of medics like went into this simulated house and found a patient who had certain symptoms. And then as, as we did our evaluation and exam, we were like, oh, this is anthrax. And they're like, what are you guys going to do? Well, the answer is... We've been locked, exposed to anthrax. Yeah, <laughs> we've been exposed to anthrax now, right? Yeah. So we had to like, like the, the answer was basically like, Wait shut all rescued. the doors. Yeah, shut yeah. all the doors, call the hazmat team. Guess what? You're now technically a quote-unquote patient victim because you've been exposed. So these are important things we need yeah. to take into consideration. So with all, you know, hazmat possibilities, pay attention to your dispatch information, right? If you've got people getting sick and you're getting information like it's farmland and it, there could be possible pesticides or if you're hearing, like when we get into the symptoms of this, if you're hearing that they have this sequence of of symptoms, you're going to have a strong index of suspicion telling you, hey, this is maybe not organophosphate poison, but this is some sort of poison. This is some sort of exposure, right? I think and when big, that happens... I was going to say, one big clue, I think, is when you have multiple victims. When you have, like, multiple people having symptoms, that should be a really big red flag of, like, could there be some kind of exposure going on? So when you have something like that, you're obviously not going to enter the scene until you can guarantee that it is safe for you to go in and provide care. So you are going to stage, and that might mean, you know, watching the emergency play out until... It's safe. You yeah, know I mean, and that, yeah. that can be a tough thing to do. But just some general things that we do with hazmat calls, um, you know, stage far away from the incident. 
um, uphill, upwind. When it comes to hazardous materials, if it's a solid material, a good rule of thumb is usually to be 75 feet away. If it's a liquid, 150, so double it. And then if it's a gas, 300 feet away. That's kind of like just as a general rule of thumb of like, don't enter that area. Um, and that's an exam type of thing you yeah. might see. Like how far should you stage for different things? And then your your emergency response guidebook, you know, your your DOT guide and things like that is going to tell you specific hazardous materials. You know, what what's the evacuation zone? How far should ambulances stage? What are the, It even gets into what are the emergency treatments for, you know, at least the general ones like flushing uh, flushing the area or, you know, maybe we need a Mark One kit, we need atropine, those sort of things. So it's going to kind of give you, give you an idea of like how to get the ball rolling with that. It is not your job to be like the incident commander on, on one of these calls. It's your job to make sure that you remain safe, that you stage uphill, upwind. If you can, identify with binoculars or whatever. You can get the story about what's going on, and you can pass that information on. That's the most important thing. But don't enter until you know that it's safe for you to enter. So if you were to be treating a patient with organophosphate poisoning, um, this is going to be out of the hot zone, right? We usually have like a hot zone, a warm zone, a cold zone. A warm zone is where we would do decontamination. The hot zone is where the contamination would be. And then the cold zone would be where it's safe to, to operate. And you're going to be treating patients in the cold zone. You're not going to be in the thick of it doing that. That's not safe. That's going to you know, make you exposed. So what's nice about that emergency response guide too, is that it'll tell you almost like how it'll tell you how long you can be in the hot zone for rescue. You know what I mean? Like if there's a certain like time exposure, things like that. But again, that guide is really, really good. One, if you know how to use it. So if you've never used it before, make sure someone teaches you how to use it or review it yourself. But also you have to know that you need to grab it. So like if you never, if you never suspect that this could be some kind of exposure and you never grab that book, well then it doesn't really do you any good. So knowing where those resources are, and having a high index of suspicion on certain calls that you would think to grab something like that is important. And it might be just as simple as communicating with dispatch, you know, and just saying, like, what, what do we have on this? What information do we have? You know, and then, hey, what, wh- which way is the wind blowing? You know what I mean? Is it safe for me to enter? Confirm those sort of things, right? So it's all going to depend on your system, but just make sure that you're having these considerations and you're protecting yourself first. So um, we just want to highlight that importance of scene safety and self-protection before we even render care because this is kind of a, this is a dangerous thing to be playing around with. Um, so especially too, like you were mentioning, organophosphates specifically can very much affect community health if we let that, you know, if if we let that exposure spread, right? So this isn't a disease. It's not like someone with organophosphate poisoning shows up and gives it to somebody else, right? The environment would be kind of enriched with that. And that's the issue. So stay out of the environment, let those people come to you and then treat them appropriately. And we even have, we we even run into this in the emergency department as well, where like we have to consider you know, like if someone comes in with symptoms and they've got that organic phosphate stuff on their clothes and then I do my exam and all of a sudden my nurse starts getting symptoms and I start getting symptoms. Like this this has happened in the past. We're like, so again, that it's not that the patient themselves like coughing on you and giving you or get, but no, it's like it's they decon, have the, yeah, you know, they it's, have it's the contamination. Contaminations off yeah, of they have the contaminate on them and they can spread it to other people. And that's Which is why, I mean, you guys have emergency procedures outside like in the in the EMS bays. A lot of times you'll set up a whole decon situation, you know, you'll, you'll rinse, you'll do all that stuff to right. try to decon those patients and then keep them kind of semi-quarantined while you treat. Yeah. Um, that being said, when we get to treating them and it's safe to do so, we need to understand what we're dealing with. So can you explain a little bit to me about how organophosphates work? And maybe even before we get into that, maybe let's talk a little bit about acetylcholine and acetylcholine esterase and kind of how those neurotransmitters work in our body. Sure. So organophosphate, so the typically 
especially in this day and age where you're going to run into organophosphate poisoning is going to be like pesticides, fertilizers. So, or you know, like you mentioned, terrorist attack, like that, right, that sort yeah. of thing that would be like sarin gas, um, VX nerve gas. Right. Those yeah. are designed, those have organophosphate mechanisms that are designed to, right. to harm you. Exactly. But yeah. Accident, accidental stuff is going to be poisoning from pesticides. We, we use organophosphates to, treat crops right. to kill bugs. Yeah. So someone's cleaning out their barn or someone's like, you know, working on their farm and that sort of thing and, and they can get exposed to these types of things. So organophosphates, essentially what they do, and then we'll we'll say what they do and then we'll jump into how this all works. So organophosphates cause symptoms by essentially keeping around acetylcholine longer than it should be. So then, like you said, well, the, what does that even mean? So acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. So a neurotransmitter is a essentially a chemical that will travel from one nerve or one neuron to another neuron to re relay a signal. So if you think about your neuron, you've got your cell body, which is like the head of the neuron, right? And if if you if you don't remember what it looks like, stop stop the audio or stop the video and and quickly Google the you know anatomy of a neuron so you know what I'm talking about. But the cell body is the part of the neuron that holds the nucleus, right? Then there's the axon, so that's the, the pathway that runs down, and then we get down to the um, axon terminal where we have dendrites, and these are these kind of little, little, yeah, little tentacle things that go out. So a nerve impulse, basically through the exchange of ion, neg positive and negative ions, will run down that axon to send an electrical signal, if you will, down to, from the cell body, down the axon to the axon terminal and the dendrites. That then, the dendrites essentially release a neurotransmitter. So that electrical signal will stimulate the bottom part of the neuron, if you will, to release a neurotransmitter, which will then float between the dendrites of the one to the cell body of another neuron. So you, and got, then, you got tentacles on heads, tentacles on heads, tentacles on right. this huge chain, right? So the tentacles are releasing these, these neurotransmitters. These, this chemical, and this chemical's traveling across the tiny little space in between the, the, the tentacles and the head. Synaptic cleft. And then it's going to bind to that motor neuron or whatever neuron we're talking about is going to bind to that yep. head and then that's going to trigger, trigger the ion yep. and that's going to continue the electrical, the, signal, the electrical signal. signal. So a lot of people don't really get this. A lot of people I think think that like lightning's traveling through our body and there's not like there is there's slow slow relatively chemicals happening and then there's also, you know, fast electricity, but that electricity is generated by shifting of chemicals of ions. activation well, ions yeah yeah exactly yeah, but positive the, and negative but the chemicals have to activate that ion that action right. potential so Correct. without the that acetylcholine you know you're not going to get the effect that you need right and it's not going to continue the impulse so, so neurotrans main neurotransmitters in the body so acetylcholine actually was the first neurotransmitter ever to be discovered we didn't really well, before we even realized what neurotransmitters are that was the first one other neurotransmitters though so other chemicals that will travel between neurons to initiate action potentials in that electrical pathway. Dopamine, norepinephrine, uh, GABA, G-A-B-A, that's another one. Uh, glutamate. Um, you know, these, so you, you kind of probably remember some of these terms, right? So acetylcholine is, is one of these neurotransmitters. Um, and acetylcholine you, you probably are familiar with because we've studied it a lot more than some, you know, than some of the other ones from a neurotransmitter standpoint. Um, but what it does is that it, like I said, it enters that that space between the dendrites and the next, you know, cell body, and then it binds to that cell body to start another thing. Well, when it's floating out there, it has to be broken up in order for it to go away, right? It can't sit there forever. We need to continue this ongoing. You need to reset the cycle. Yeah, we got to reset the cycle and that sort of thing. So there is a 
enzyme called acetylcholine esterase that will then come into that space and break down the acetylcholine um, actually into a choline and acetic acid, and then that gets reabsorbed. And like I said, we restart that pathway, right? So every all these neurotransmitters have to be... And it sounds like a mouthful, but just remember, ACE always means like a breakdown. It's, it's something that's breaking down, right? It's an enzyme. So it's, it's breaking something down. So like if you have alteplase, we talk about in, you know, when we're using TPA, things like that, it breaks down clotting, you know what I mean? So we can yeah, kind of yeah. think of ACE always means you're breaking something down. So right. we have acetylcholine or ACH. Right. Acetylcholine esterase is just the thing that breaks down. The thing that breaks it down. It's, it's right. pretty simple. It's big words, but pretty simple concept. Exactly, exactly. So what organophosphates do is that they bind to acetylcholine esterase and prevent it from breaking down the acetylcholine. So the acetylcholine basically stays around a lot longer than it should, and it stimulates these pathways a lot longer than it should, and then we get pathology from that. We get symptoms that we don't want because it's it should be absorbed quickly. It's not, and now we've got these lingering... We get we get too much of a, a good thing, if you will, right? Like, we, we need acetylcholine in order for certain functions of the body to happen, right? Mm-hmm. We want that chemical to be released, but if we don't stop it, it will continue to just run rampant, and right, now yeah, we have yeah. extreme symptoms. We have extreme versions of that activation. Right, exactly. So again, so we've got acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter. We have acetylcholine esterase, which breaks that down to start the pathway over. And we've got organophosphates that when we get exposed to those, they prevent the acetylcholine esterase from breaking down the acetylcholine. So we have so too much acetylcholine. Yeah, right. We have too much acetylcholine in the system. And we would call this... Um, an, a cholinergic effect. So anything that, um, when acetylcholine acts on something, we, we typically refer to that as a cholinergic area. It's, it's a, um, so you, you can have cholinergic effects and you can have anticholinergic effects, right? So our treatment for this so would be an anticholinergic medication. medication. Right. So what you might, you might hear that phrasing being used, but just remember that like cholinergic is involving acetylcholine. It's just the name for an acetylcholine involved system mm-hmm. or tissue. Right, right. So yeah, so uh, you know, um a cholinergic symptom or a cholinergic effect would be the effect that acetylcholine has. And then anticholinergic would be you don't have enough acetylcholine or you're not releasing it's either acetyl- acting against acetylcholine right. or it's competing with acetylcholine. It's it's right, we're exactly. working in the it's other the opposite direction. effects, exactly. And I think medics and EMTs we get confused because we want to be, just be like fight or flight. And rest and digest. Those are the chemicals and hormones we got to worry about. And it's like, no, there's a lot of other stuff going on well, in your right. body, right? So, but you can think of that in the same concept as as a you know beta agonist versus a beta antagonist. But everything's not beta, guys. Like everything's not talking adrenaline. That's uh, this is this is very different. This is acetylcholine. It, it does different right, things. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about what acetylcholine, where it acts in the body, and then why you then see these symptoms when we have too much of it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. Is like so, and, and that's what's hard. I think sometimes in medicine is that there's there's different terms that that mean different things. So like the parasympathetic and sympathetic, those are nervous systems. Those are those are systems of nervous tissue and neurons and organs that function a certain way. And then we have neurotransmitters that work in both of those. Like so, both parasympathetic and sympathetic use acetylcholine and dopamine and serotonin. They all still use those things, maybe some more than the other. But again, we're defining systems and then we're defining transmitters and then we're defining symptomatology. We talk about like toxidromes, like certain syndromes that can occur with certain toxins. It can get really confusing. Yeah. And we don't have to know. That's what's nice about being in the field is you don't have to necessarily know every toxidrome, every poison potentially. But you do need to recognize 
recognize symptoms that make these things obvious and then know your protocol on how to follow those. Having this background understanding is just going to make you a better provider because you're going to understand what your medication is doing and how it's acting against the pathology of what this this chemical is is doing, right? So let's talk a little bit about that. The cholinergic receptors, the areas that acetylcholine works on are kind of many, right? It works in the brain. It works in the in motor neurons to, to move muscles. Um, it works in the eyes in terms of uh, generating tears. It works in other mucous membranes where it you know generates mucus production. So it does a lot of different things. It's not like one thing. It's not right. turning you know. So when we turn all of these systems on and we have too much ACH or acetylcholine in the system, we, we get what we call, yeah, sludgem, sludgem system. So S-L-U-D-G-E-M, sludgem, is the acronym essentially that we use for, it's one of them, there's other ones, like dumbbells is another one, but um, it's the acronym we use to basically, symptomatology that clues us into this is a cholinergic response. Now, organophosphates are not the only cholinergic, like, poison out there it's just the one that we talk about but the so, good news is treatment for cholinergic response of sludge is still going to be the same yeah. so, so this is not just treatment for organophosphates it's treatment for cholinergic poisonings or so cholinergic and that's the thing is there are, there are a lot of um animal you know poisoning like we we had our we had our envenomation episode recently but when we talked about how there can be like neurotransmitter interruptions yeah. and stuff like that a lot of Poisons, stings, bites, things like that work on. Um, they basically inhibit acetylcholine esterase as well, and have a have an anti. No, I'm sorry, a, a cholinergic, cholinergic effect, effect where right. ACH is stuck in the system. There's and that's some, why you start to have like you have muscle spasm and twitching and things like that. Yeah, there's some snake venom that is essentially this. It's a anti acetylcholine esterase, just like an organophosphate would be, and it produces cholinergic symptoms. So the acronym is SLUDGEM. So So S is salivation. Leaking from the mouth. And this isn't just like, yeah, I have spit in my mouth. This is like obscene amounts of salivation. Yeah, like ready to to really get in there and eat. Like right right before a rib dinner. All right, well, that's that kind weird. of salivation. It's getting weird. All right, Uh, lacrimation, which means crying. Leaking from the eyes. So if they're just crying... A little girl, and they're just drooling all over themselves. <laughs> um, urination, leaking from the bladder, peeing themselves. This is not a f- don't let this happen to you guys. You're crying, you're spitty, you peed yourself. Guess what? D is defecation. Yep. Now you crapped yourself too. You crapped your pants, you are wet everywhere, right? And leaky. Gastrointestinal upset. Well, no kidding. You just diarrhea yourself. <laughs> so, so, so this is really referring to like the muscle spasm of the smooth muscles. So this is like cramping. You'll mm. they'll have very bad cramp, abdominal cramping. And then meiosis, which is pinpoint pupils. And then sometimes the M, we say muscle twitching as well. So they can have like muscle spasm, pinpoint pupils. Now, they don't have to have all of these things to, to be being affected by a cholinergic response. Like they can have some of these things. But sure. we can kind of recognize these symptoms as saying, okay, this is excess acetylcholine, and now I need to treat. So another acronym I'll throw in there, because this is one we learned from in, in emergency medicine, is dumbbells, D-U-M-B-B-E-L-L-S. And I'm just going to cover the, the first couple here. So D is same as like defecation, urination, meiosis, like you said, pinpoint pupils. And then we have two Bs. So it's bronchorrhea, so like basically like leaky 
bronchioles. So you've got like mucus, like they're coughing up like mucus type of thing. And then bradycardia because acetylcholine also will slow your heart rate down. So the bradycardia is another one. So just a couple other ones I'm throwing there. So then you also dumbbells. I think the E is, I don't have no idea what the E is. We'll look it up later. I guess. I don't know. Next time. L lacrimation. S salivation. Bell. Maybe there's only one in this acronym. I'm just yeah. saying. So sludgeum's a good one. Use sludgeum. <laughs> Use sludgeum. But like I said, things like bronchorrhea, which is that like mucus production in the lungs, yeah, yeah. and then also like bradycardia can also yeah, be. It affects a lot of systems. Like like right. acetylcholine is involved in a lot of different systems, and that's what we were talking about earlier. It's not just like turning it on, turn it off, fight or flight, rest and digest. Like that's not really what we're talking about. It's lots of stuff. It works on smooth muscle. It works on skeletal muscle. Well, it works on in the brain. Like you'll see altered mental status and stuff. Like especially with super excess amounts, you're gonna have like shutdown of your neurological system you're gonna have a lot of issues um well and that's and the the acetylcholine you you see why acetylcholine is is one of the main neurotransmitters in the parasympathetic nervous system but again we're not talking about the parrot we're not talking about parasympathetic nervous system we're talking about colon so there's this oh that's where it gets confusing there's this overlap between what term and this is why it's good to know what terminology you're using are we talking about a system, a nervous system? Are we talking about a uh, group of symptoms? How are we talking about a certain effects that one neurotransmitter has? They're all a little bit different, but there's a lot of overlap. So let's say we see sludgeum. We know what's going on. Acetylcholine esterase is not working. So we're, we, have, we are stopping the stoppers. So there's too much acetylcholine. What do I want to give? An anticholinergic, mm-hmm. something that's going to eliminate acetylcholine right or compete with acetylcholine right so how do so how do we to prevent it from binding to transmitters because remember these exactly. are these are chemicals that bind to transmitters to activate a certain effect in the body right, right. so acetylcholine is binding to things that's making you crying making you crap yourself making you pee yourself <laughs> right making you spit all over making you just tummy cramping right hard and also you're spasming like like a, someone having a seizure we need to stop that so what atropine does is it's an anticholinergic. It competitively binds to acetylcholine receptors and doesn't allow and like blocks what that receptor does, right? So acetylcholine binds to these receptors that make you cry. We give a medication, atropine, that binds to those receptors and doesn't do anything so that acetylcholine can't bind. So right. we would call that a competitive antagonist. Right. It's competing and it has the opposite effect. Now, what what's not happening here is that we're we're, we're not affecting the acetylcholinesterase or the organophosphate at all, right? right? Like those, the, so the, the organophosphate is still binding to acetylcholinesterase, so it doesn't work. Well, we're kind of just ignoring that, and we're just trying to competitively bind the receptors so that acetylcholine cannot. So we reverse those symptoms by stopping acetylcholine's um, dangerous binding. activity, yeah, yeah, inactivity, right? So we do this for long enough that eventually the organophosphate will be flushed out of the system, and then now acetylcholinesterase is working okay. So like long-term, you and I out in the field, the paramedics and the EMTs, we're going to be giving atropine. We might also be giving something called 2PAM. Um, It's a drug that comes along with atropine in what's called a Mark I kit. These are kits that are kind of given to us by the federal government specifically for, hey, there's a big sarin you know, gas thing, or there's a big, you know, there's a big attack with organophosphates, or there's a, right. there's a fertilizer plant exploded, and now we've got this big issue. Right. So the Mark I kits are to protect ourselves and to protect others by giving atropine and something called 2PAM. So what does 2PAM do? So 2PAM is, like, so 2PAM, so 
the number two and then P-A-M. It's Preladoxime. 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 Preladoxime is the, the generic name, I guess, for 2-PAM. And what that does is now we use that medication to actually try to deal with the acetylcholinesterase problem. So what happens is the organophosphate binds to acetylcholinesterase, and acetylcholinesterase can't work now to break down acetylcholine. What praladoxine or 2-PAM does is it binds to the other part of the acetylcholinesterase to knock off the organophosphate so that it can start working again. It's just kind of free roaming in the system and can be right. eliminated. So that's more of a... Uh, that's more of like an antidote. We would talk about antidotes. So atropine and 2-PAM would be both be considered antidotes to organophosphate. But in my opinion, I feel like 2-PAM is the actual antidote, and atropine is what is treating the symptoms. Yeah, atropine doesn't really fix the problem. Right, right. right. Like it doesn't... It doesn't fix the underlying cause. Yeah, it doesn't, exactly. doesn't right. correct that, but 2-PAM does. And that's why we kind of take this two-pronged approach. Let's start competing with acetylcholine to kind of prevent its... its excess and then let's also try to fix the problem with right. acetylcholine esterase. What's nice about this too is that like so we've had this question before like well like like how much? Well and the answer is as much as you need. So literally you're gonna titrate, you're gonna give atropine and two PAM doses every X amount of time. You know, it, it tells you how on the vials and stuff, but you're gonna just keep doing that until they're no longer crying and no longer peeing themselves and no longer sweat. You know what I mean? Like you're literally gonna titrate to effect with these kinds of things. And so, you'll have like your protocols will dictate and you know, a lot of these Mark One kits will kind of supersede your protocol and it'll dictate how much you can give because it's gonna be how much you have. The reason we have the Mark One kits is typically an ambulance isn't carrying enough atropine on its own. Because we use atropine for cardiac effects mostly. So we don't usually carry enough atropine to be able to handle something like well, an organophosphate we, issue. That's why you have these extra kits that are going to get shipped out to you or a special place that you can grab them. And even that might not be enough. This is something that's interesting when you talk about um, planning for mass casualty events or planning for these t- disasters and terrorist type of attacks is that there's we have a shortage overall, like per ambulance for sure, per hospital even, emergency department, we probably don't have enough atropine to handle more than one or well, two people. So like, here's the thing so, is, is, here's the secret, and you heard it here first, not trying to start a conspiracy theory or anything, but like, we for sure have enough for ourselves. Well, so that's what they do is they, they try to make sure that we have enough for providers so that we can go in. You protect the first yeah. responders. So, so those Mark One kits. A lot of times you're probably going to be using it on yourself. Right. So, so those Mark One kits are really more designed to protect you. Obviously, like I said, we, we're going to use – we're not going to like, like, nope, this is for me. You can't have it. And the patient's like, hey, please, I can't stop peeing myself. No, but I mean like it's not like, like we're going to use them. But but we don't – like I said, if, if you showed up on scene and you had 20 people exposed to organophosphate poisoning, your Mark One kit's not enough for maybe even one of them. I, I, you know, it depends on how big the exposure is and that sort of thing. So, again, there has to be – um, and this kind of goes more back to hospital systems and, and working with the Department of Homeland Security to, to make sure that you could get atropine in. We talked about this when we talked about envenomations, too. Like some hospitals don't have anti-venom. You got to know where you're going to get these resources. We saw it with COVID, with stockpiles yeah, sure. of, of vents and stuff like yeah, that. You know I mean, there are, we, we can't be prepared for every single disaster, but right. we do our best to try to have stockpiles here and there. So right, this is exactly. one thing that – and this is why it's a popular topic and it's something that's on the test and stuff is this is one thing that we've kind of prepared for federally. Yeah, yeah. So, it's nice to know, hey, if you know there's a big sarin or VX nerve gas thing, or if there's a big 
fertilizer explosion, like what's our plan? Yeah, there are stockpiles where you can draw from. So you will have disaster planning happening there. You're going to have huge, you know. Um, well, in each region, so the the U.S. is broken down into regions in terms of where we store these different types of management. Yeah, emergency yeah. management regions. So like if you're region two, region three, there there are hopefully your your hospital and health system planners and disaster planners, they know they know where that is and they know how to get access to it and how they would do that in a quick and quick so quick. it's mass casualty rules. Yeah, things are, right, things exactly. are gonna change, things are gonna supersede your protocol, but you know now if you bump into a patient that is having these symptoms and it's a single event sort of thing, and you see these sludge symptoms, you know that that's a cholinergic response and your treatment for that is going to be atropine until they can get definitive treatment. If we're for sure that it's organophosphate, you're using a Mark One kit or something like that, then you're going to go ahead and use that 2-PAM as well. And that's going to kind of supersede any of the rules that you're dealing with at the time. Exactly. So, so I think that about Yeah, I think that's, hopefully that was helpful for you guys. Again, like this is, we're, we're picking one very specific topic here. Again, there's lots more to be said about toxicology and toxidromes and cholinergic, anticholinergic, sympathomimetic. I mean, we could get into all this stuff. We do in our toxicology lectures as a part of our test prep program. So again, if you have a chance to check that out, make sure you do. Uh, but otherwise, like I said, we, we appreciate you guys taking a listen. We really want to hear from you. So if you have topics that you'd like to hear us cover, um, shoot us an email. So the new email is going to be podcast at guardiantestprep.com. All right. Send any of your questions, comments, concerns there. And like I said, we'd love to hear from you what you'd like to hear more about. So thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Stay sweet. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, we'd love for you to check out the rest of our content at guardiantestprep.com. We specialize in preparing EMT, AEMT, and paramedic students for not only their school, but also the National Registry exam at the end. Enter EMT Test Prep with over 15 hours of videos, workbooks, question banks, and everything you need to pass. We'd love to have you get involved. Again, guardiantestprep.com. Check us out.